It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. An historic collection with America in crisis. The subprime housing collapse was turning the financial system on its head. Freshman Illinois Senator Barack Obama was in a heated race against Republican veteran John McCain. It was 2008, and I was the Midwest correspondent. My Chicago office was just down the street from Obama headquarters, but mostly I was on the road in Iowa, Ohio, Wisconsin, and Michigan, cramming into rallies at school gymnasiums or meeting campaign staff in strip mall offices. It was a tough time for the Midwest. The financial crisis threatened a region still reeling from decades of industrial decline. But it was the Midwest that helped propel Obama to the presidency. Standing at his election night rally in Grant Park, the mood was electric, the elation palpable. America had elected its first black president. Twelve years later, another historic election and a different kind of crisis. The idea of a post-racial America seems absurd. COVID-19 is causing another economic collapse, and the Midwest is once more center stage. With 94 days to go, this is Checks and Balance. I'm Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief. I'm hosting while John Prito takes a break this week. This is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take a big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what can the Midwest teach us about America's racial and economic struggles? Twice recently, an eruption in middle America has sent shockwaves around the world. Four years ago, voters in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania pushed Donald Trump over the line to win the White House. Two months ago, residents of Minneapolis took to the streets after a white policeman killed George Floyd, an African-American. His death prompted demonstrations and debate on racism everywhere. This is a special episode on the Midwest, its influence on the 2020 election, and on America's future. We'll hear from Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, her predecessor, Rahm Emanuel, and get the latest from The Economist election forecast. John Fasman, our Washington correspondent, proud Chicagoan by birth, is here as usual. Hi, John. Charlotte, how are you? I'm fine. And we also have Adam Roberts, our Midwest correspondent based in Chicago, who has just written a special report on the region. Hi, Adam. Hi, Charlotte. Hi, John. So when I was a Midwest correspondent, I felt like sometimes my European colleagues thought the Midwest was something that started in Pennsylvania and ended around Idaho. Tell me how you define the region, Adam, and any Midwestern ticks that you've gained during your time there. So I spent a lot of the time doing the research for this report, asking other people how they defined the Midwest. And I think from about 100 interviews, I got about 100 different answers. There were just so many variations on a theme, I suppose, of, of what is the Midwest. But I defined it as 12 states that spread across from the two Dakotas, South Dakota and North Dakota, and across to Ohio and a little bit of Pennsylvania, because I wanted to steal Pittsburgh. Um, 
a lot of people talked to me about the values of the Midwest. They didn't want to talk about the geography of the place. They wanted to say, this is the bit of America where people are nice. This is where people are not like those horrible coastal folk where you guys live. Uh, those cutthroat places in the cities on the West Coast and the East Coast. In the middle of America here, people are actually genuine, friendly, nice and open. And so a lot of people talked about values. Um, as for ticks, I don't know, I, I, I find the Midwest very different from everywhere else I've ever worked as a journalist. I, one thing that just shocks me is, is how early people eat here. I'm not an early morning person and everyone gets up incredibly early and to see people having their, their dinner at five in the afternoon, that just shocks me. Fasten, what do you define as the geography of the Midwest? Well, uh, my family is, is entirely Chicagoan, so they came off the boat and ended in Chicago. So we've always thought that the East Coast begins at around the city limits of Gary, Indiana, and everything south of O'Hare Airport is the south, and everything west of around Batavia is the Wild West. <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. I think the main muscle that I gained from being in the Midwest was being able to drive for eight hours with maybe one stop. I used to always have editors asking me, you know, can you get to North Dakota this afternoon? And I'd have to explain that that was a 16-hour drive. And so, yeah, it's a lot of driving that, that happened. I loved your line from the special report, Adam, when you said that when you drive through the Midwest, you spend a lot of time in between places. And I think there is a scale, there is a scale um, that's hard to get your head around unless you've spent time traversing the Midwest. But anyway, let's begin by talking about the economy. The Midwest can overlap with the Rust Belt in some people's mind. And it's true that compared to the coasts or the Sun Belt, the region has been an economic laggard over the past 50 years. Adam, though, in your research, you describe evidence of change. Um, can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, I was looking at cities especially. I, I was most interested in the urban Midwest, and I wanted to understand why some cities seem to just be in perpetual decline. You can see, for example, Detroit at one point in the 1950s, I think it had a population of 1.8 million people, and that's just collapsed ever since. It continues to fall every every census. It's down to about one third of its peak population. And yet other cities have, have revived themselves and have found ways to get beyond the old forms of manufacturing that they used to rely on, and they found ways to reinvent themselves. And a lot of what I wanted to do with my report and ended up finding out about was some cities found this sort of magic formula for getting past the old ways. So you could look across at Pittsburgh, for example, it used to be Steel City, the, the one place that you'd think of if you thought of steel in the US, and it had not much else going for it. And when the steel industry slumped, then Pittsburgh was in a great uh, problem. And yet it has reinvented itself, thanks a lot to universities, uh, Carnegie Mellon especially, and it's found ways, for example, to move into robotics, artificial intelligence, all sorts of tech stuff. And there are all sorts of interesting examples that I've found across the region of cities that have found ways out of the old gloom. Not everyone can do it and not every city is successful, but there is more and more evidence that this region has found ways out of the morass. A lot of the fortune of different cities is tied to whether they can keep really educated people there, right? What's been the evidence to date in different Midwestern cities on the brain drain, whether talented people stay, whether they can build on their educated population? Yeah, I think you're completely right. The, the bits of the Midwest that do well are those with the most educated people. So if you can hold on to your graduates or produce a lot of graduates or get people into vocational education schemes get people more highly skilled, they're much more resilient to cope when the economy goes wrong or you've got these transitions from one form of economic activity to another. 
And the lesson of the Midwest is that the cities at the western end of the region, the Chicago's, Minneapolis, Madison, those places have fared much better because they've got a more highly educated population. So a few months ago, I sat down with Rahm Emanuel, who, who was the former mayor of Chicago, and we talked about how this applies to his city. From the community college level up to the biomedical center at Northwestern University and everything between, access to talent at whatever level is going to be the most important competitive edge the Midwest has. If you ask today a family manufacturing facility and you ask a Fortune 100, what's the number one challenge you have? Almost all of them today will tell you recruiting and retaining talent. Yeah. When I became mayor, 31% of the city had a four-year degree, and in the United States it was 29. When I left, the United States went from 29 and some change to 31, mm-hmm. and Chicago went from 31 to 39. And of the seven biggest cities in the United States, Chicago had the highest college-educated four-year degree population. I revamped the community colleges so they were aligned with our industries that were producing the greatest amount of jobs. They weren't just for jobs, they were for careers in healthcare, careers in logistics. I extended our commitment not to 12th grade but to 14th grade with free community college. Mm. Now, I did that for economic competitive reasons. The other reason is, for political reasons, I think it's essential that we get more people in the winner's circle. But what about the sort of the bigger draw? I mean, a really big city like a New York or a London will yeah. draw globally. Mm-hmm. So do you see Chicago getting up to that level of being... Well, we surpassed New York, so what do I... Your I, question should be the inverse. Do New York get up to Chicago? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, but okay. here's the way it's different. London or New York or Hong Kong, the world is their recruitment circle for a Goldman Sachs or for a J.P. Morgan or for, you know, whatever, for Barclays. You're correct about that. You know what? Give me the work ethic of somebody coming out of Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, mm. Wisconsin. The Midwest work ethic, hard to beat. And anybody who's traveled the world will tell you what we got here is something really special. One of the interesting questions is why would young graduates come to a Chicago or a Minneapolis versus some of those coastal cities? What what are some of the reasons why they would choose a Chicago over any number of other places where they could live? One reason is cost of living is is much less in Chicago than it is in New York or San Francisco, and even less in Minneapolis, Duluth, Milwaukee, any number of super pleasant cities that have city amenities and have a sort of sense of vibrancy to them. You don't have to be a sort of senior executive to live in those cities and have a house and a family uh, and a really nice life. And I think if COVID has has begun a sort of permanent change toward working from home and toward remote working, I think you'll see a lot of those cities really start to shine as people wonder why they should go to a coastal city that's going to be three times more expensive, where the commute is longer, where their cost of living are higher, when they can, where they can just stay somewhere where they can have a much nicer life. What about immigration? What are the trends for immigration in the region? Do you see that being a big driver of population growth going forward? Or is it really about retaining current graduates rather than attracting people from outside America? Yeah, I think for the Midwest right now, it's about retaining what they've got. Historically, the Midwest relied on immigration. It needed these great flows of people from Northern Europe, Central Europe, from the South of the US, from Central America to keep its population growing. 
But as overall immigration has slowed down, as refugee numbers have fallen, that influx of new new blood, in a way, just isn't coming in the same way as before. So for the Midwest, it can't really expect to keep up the high rate of population growth of the past. It can't keep up with other parts of the country. So mostly it's trying to hold on to what it has. Adam, I really loved reading your special report because on the one hand, it was a very optimistic story. You point out that there is evidence of what works to revitalize cities and regions in Pittsburgh and in Chicago. But you also point out that there are places that are left behind. And I think you see that bubbling up certainly in 2016 with Trump managing to win many Midwestern states. Um, There is this frustration among big parts of the Midwestern population, that the global economy has left them behind, um, that there aren't job prospects, that they feel like global trade has not worked in their favor. What's the lesson for those places that don't have the positive stories that you hear from in Pittsburgh or in Chicago? Yeah, I think it's it's a really hard one for certain places, especially smaller cities. So I spent some time in, in smaller places that are losing their companies losing their population, losing investors. I went to Decatur in central Illinois, for example, that um, is seeing is one of the fastest declining cities in, in the US. Its population is hemorrhaging. And I spoke to the mayor there. And, and it's just very hard for a place like that to try to compete. It doesn't have a university. It doesn't have a health complex. It did have some industry, but that seems to be going away. The lesson for those places might well be very grim. I think it's easy enough to say this as an outsider, but there's a form of triage that might have to go on. And certain places might continue to see themselves decline and their people leave, and that will allow other places to succeed. So, for example, Chicago does well by sucking the life out of many of those smaller places like Decatur. And the future for the Midwest may well be this rebalancing of the population away from smaller places and into bigger ones. Well, thank you. In a moment, we'll hear from Chicago's current mayor, Lori Lightfoot. But first, a reminder. If you're not an Economist subscriber, you really should be. You'll get the best offer on a new subscription by heading to economist.com slash 2020 election pod. This week's paper has a big briefing on Google and stories on the bicycle business, million mile batteries, and plenty more besides. That link for a special rate on a new subscription is economist.com slash 2020 election pod. You'll find it in the notes for this episode. Adam, for your report on the Midwest, you've also been speaking to Lori Lightfoot, who took over from Rahm Emanuel as mayor of Chicago last year. Yeah, that's right. Lori Lightfoot's a fascinating character. She was elected just over a year ago as as the mayor of Chicago. She's something of an outsider to politics. She was uh, stepping in as a threat to Rahm Emanuel when he was mayor. And she she came in as a prosecutor, not really a politician. She's African-American. She's lesbian. Uh, She's something of a breath of fresh air, I think, for the city. And she's focused a great deal on dealing with poverty, dealing with the difficulties on the south side, the west side of Chicago. She wants to do much more about tackling segregation, the problems that afflict the African-American community in particular. 
And she's a, a really interesting political character, I think. She's quite tough. She's had some run-ins with Donald Trump in, in recent weeks. And she's gutsy, all the things that you might imagine someone from Chicago to be. So when I sat down with her a little bit before the COVID-19 closed down, uh, she told me that her politics comes from her own personal story, from her own background. Both of my parents were born in the segregated South in the 1920s. That experience that they had of being poor and really growing up under the grip of Jim Crow in the United States, that shaped their entire destiny. And as a consequence, it shaped my experience as a young person as well. My father, at the height of his earning, made about $27,000 a year. I made more on an annualized basis after my first year of law school working a summer job. I was embarrassed, candidly, to tell my father how much I made because it was so much more than he could have ever imagined. Now, of course, he wanted that for me. He made sacrifices, working two or three jobs, so that I would be positioned to take advantage of something like that. But I grew up really knowing what hardship was all about. And then in my city, there are people who are really, really struggling. Not enough food to eat. When you think about the fact that 76% of Chicago public school kids are eligible for free lunches Mm. and breakfast, and that when they're not in school, each of these kids struggles to have a good, healthy meal every day. That's a crushing reality, and it brings it home that too many of our people are suffering. When you think about the life expectancy gaps in so many neighborhoods, when you think about Hyde Park, where the life expectancy is in the low 80s, pretty average, but then you go literally across the street to Washington Park and a life expectancy drops by 10, 15 years. That is profound. And what's your analysis of the cause of that? Is it, is it racial segregation that's the biggest cause? Well, I mean, it, re- it really, for me, goes back to you know, our original sin of slavery. Mm-hmm. It goes back to institutions being built up over now centuries that perpetuated the myth of white supremacy and black and brown inferiority, mm-hmm. but that was rigorously, in many instances, violently enforced and stripping people not only of their dignity as human beings, but of their ability to achieve their God-given potential or talent, and that 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 then became baked into Mm. laws and public policy. Are you thinking of redlining? Are you thinking of investment in schools? Keep keep going. I mean, the list is is quite long. Just thinking about incremental ways that seemingly are benign. When we make people fill out reams of paperwork to prove that they're poor, that's a barrier. That's a Mm. burden. So what I'll be doing, aside from the bigger policy issues, is not just looking at those smaller things. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we started on very early on in my tenure as mayor is unwinding our incredibly regressive fines and fees regime. Mm-hmm. When you hear that Cook County, the county in which Chicago is, has the highest rate of Chapter 13, that's individual bankruptcy filings, mm-hmm and that a large number of those people that are filing for bankruptcies cite debt that they owe to the city Mm. as a driver of their bankruptcy, we know we have a problem. Because those people then aren't able to participate and contribute to the economy in ways um, that are important and meaningful. Are you as a mayor the best place 
to do this? I mean, how, how much of this is about federal policy, about state policy? How much can any city mayor Well, look, I, 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 I'm all a firm believer in playing the, the cards that I've dealt. Right. The reality in America today is we can't really rely that much on the federal government. And I don't know when we'll be able to in the foreseeable future. We're obviously in the midst of an election year. But even if we weren't, the politics of Washington is so toxic, so divisive. As a city, right now today, I have residents that are in need. I don't have the luxury of bickering. People expect me to govern. They expect me to lead. So I think cities are where things are happening. We are the laboratories. We are the experimenters. We are the place that bold policy is going to come from. Adam, the dynamic that Mayor Lightfoot describes in Chicago, how broadly sustained is that throughout the Midwest? In Detroit, of course, racial division is a defining feature of the city. But is it true in Madison, in Milwaukee, in Minneapolis, in other big Midwestern cities? Yes, I, I think it is true. And, it, and it's more a problem in the Midwest, I think, than probably in the rest of America, that segregation persists uh, by one measure Milwaukee is the most segregated city in all of the US. And uh, I think that's got a lot to do with the fact that cities that are failing to really grow fast, uh, like the Milwaukee's and Detroit's St. Louis and so on, they find it much harder to overcome the segregation of the past. If you're not building lots of new housing, if you're not expanding as a city, you don't have the resources to try to unpick the, the causes of the segregation. You can't be building new schools as easily and, and rejigging where, where your resources are going. So it is a pervasive problem across the region and one that if the Midwest doesn't get to grips with, then the whole country won't solve. John, you spent time reporting from the South. You spent several years living in Atlanta and writing about segregation and other issues in the South. What do you see as similarities or differences between racial segregation in the South versus the Midwest? I mean, my impression is that a lot of the residential segregation in the Midwest, which is quite stark, is sort of derives from great migration housing patterns. When you had this massive wave of African-American Southerners looking for a better life in factory jobs up in the industrial north, you know, they it, that region may not have been legally segregated, but it certainly was not welcoming. And so you had African-Americans living in specific areas. Uh, and to a large extent, that remains the case today. I found that to be much less the case in the South's big cities. Certainly Atlanta. I grew up in Washington, D.C. Atlanta was much more integrated than than D.C. was. Places like Montgomery and Birmingham both have, you know, thriving African-American middle and upper class communities. And I just think that that a lot of the my impression and Adam will tell me if this is right or wrong, is that a lot of the residential segregation you see in the Midwest is, is just sort of calcified from 70, 80, 90 years ago. Yeah, John, I think you're, you're absolutely right. It does have that long historical uh, link. Uh, of course, that great migration happened, as you said, a century ago. It began a century ago and continued into the mid-20th century. And, and what shocked me when I first moved to Chicago a few years ago, having been a correspondent in post-apartheid South Africa, were the striking similarities of how deeply divided the society remained. At least in South Africa, there was a conscious effort to overcome uh, what had been policy and what had been a horrendous policy of forcing people to live separately. 
But in Chicago, it just seemed to happen because of school districts or something like that. So I live in the, the wealthy north side, which is predominantly white. Um, and whenever I go down to the south side to do stories or whatever, I'm very conscious that it's overwhelmingly African-American in much of the south side. And it just does remind me of living in Johannesburg 15, 20 years ago, that those deep divisions persist. Adam, is there a difference in what you see in segregation and police violence in cities that are depopulating in the Midwest? Are the issues different than you'd see in, say, a New York or Chicago? Yeah, I, I think depopulation is a factor. And even within Chicago, you have some areas that are depopulating, even as others are doing well. So. The, the loss of the African-American population on the south side of Chicago, over 200,000 people have left in the last 20 years. It adds to the economic problems in those areas and leaves, for example, whole blocks just opened for nothing but the drug trade. It's the same sort of story in parts of St. Louis, Ferguson just on the outskirts of St. Louis, where the population is falling, it makes it much harder to have this sort of economic vitality that you can you can build and base your your recovery on. Of course, that doesn't justify misbehaviour by the police. Awful police practices have, uh, are just to do with bad training and, and so on. But in Ferguson, what we saw was the police being used as a revenue raising operation. So the police were sent out to um, levy fines on drivers and, and others to raise revenue for the city council. And overwhelmingly, the police in Ferguson levied those fines on African Americans. And so undoubtedly, there was a lot of resentment from the community that the police were, were repressing them and exploiting them. And it just overwhelmingly was unfair. Having reported on, on policing for, for a good decade, I think you can't underestimate the extent to which that sort of behavior sows a poisonous relationship between the police and the communities they police. That's why I was especially glad to hear Mayor Lightfoot talk about talk about tackling that when it comes to bankruptcies. You both have been reporting from the Midwest uh, in real time recently. John Fasman, you were just in Minneapolis. Adam, you've, of course, been in Chicago. Trump was tweeting about carnage in Chicago back in 2017 and saying back then that if it didn't get better, he'd send in the feds. Now he is actually doing it. So what have you each seen in the cities where you've been reporting uh, in recent weeks. Fasman, let's start with you. What, what was it like in Minneapolis last week? My impression is that Minneapolis was also a strikingly segregated city and that the experiences of African-Americans and indeed African immigrants in Minneapolis is strikingly different to that of the city's white residents. And I think a lot of the convulsion that you're seeing there now comes from no longer being willing, comes from people, both black and white, no longer being willing to sort of accept that and be quiet about that. And what Minneapolis is doing now is 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 trying to find a way forward. That's not easy, but it is a really, it is a necessary first step. And Adam, what's been the reception to President Trump sending federal agents into Chicago? Well, as you can imagine, uh, President Trump is not very popular in, in much of Chicago. So I think this, this is something that will probably boost the popularity of Mayor Lightfoot and, and the Illinois politicians. But I guess it's worth saying that Chicago has been badly blighted in recent months by a horrible uptick in, in gun violence. It has seemed to coincide with maybe the, the police drawing back somewhat. Um, maybe it's something to do with the lockdown because of coronavirus, but there's been some particularly brutal shootings, a lot of children being shot, several children being killed. And so it doesn't mean that there's sympathy to the idea of sending in the feds. I don't think many people in the city are at all welcoming of that. But there is this feeling that the city has spent 
many, many years trying to get to grips with gun violence and hasn't found an effective way to do so. So there's some understanding of that side of it, too. Well, certainly law and order is going to be a big theme of this election, as we've talked about in recent weeks. And nowhere will it be more prominent than in the Midwest, particularly in some of these states where President Trump really needs to win. Well, thanks to you both. We'll be back in a moment to find out what The Economist's 2020 election forecast has to say about the Midwest. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Economist 2020 election forecast indicates that Joe Biden is very likely to beat Donald Trump at the moment, but it's updated daily. So if you're anxious about election results, checking the forecast can become a bit of a compulsive habit and one which obviously we encourage. There's a link to it in the episode notes. Elliot Morris built the forecasting model. He's a data journalist for The Economist, and this is his take on what to watch in the Midwest as we approach Election Day. In 2016, these Midwestern states were so close because they had a high number of voters who were switching from supporting Barack Obama to Donald Trump. They caused the region to shift from being a relatively Democratic-leaning region to being a pretty marginal one, one that even leaned a little bit to the right. These Obama-Trump counties were focused mostly in northeastern Iowa and southwestern Wisconsin, places that are north of Cedar Rapids, west of Madison, Wisconsin, uh, sort of along the Dubuque area, although these counties are even more remote than that. They're also scattered throughout the rest of the Midwest and states like Ohio and Michigan, of course. In 2018, these counties reverted a little bit back toward the Democrats. They gave Democratic House members. They voted in some Democratic Senate candidates in Wisconsin. They helped elect a Democratic governor. Our presidential election model is foreseeing a pretty narrow Biden victory in some of these states. We think he'll win by six or seven points in Pennsylvania and a few more points, seven or eight, in Michigan and Wisconsin. But that's not a sure thing at this point. Uh, What's important is that the states have seemed to move left. These Midwestern areas have moved more toward the Democrats than the nation as a whole has. Joe Biden's increased favorability among non-college white voters is something to watch, and it affects the Midwest disproportionately because the Midwest has more non-college white voters. And so keep your eye on those numbers in the polls. That should have an outsized impact on Pennsylvania in particular, which this year around our model thinks is the state most likely to determine the outcome of the election. Last time around it was Wisconsin. This time Pennsylvania looks most likely. 
When I was leaving the Midwest, it was mid-2011, and Scott Walker had just become governor in Wisconsin, and he was trying to slash collective bargaining rights for unions. And to my mind, it was the beginning of this real confrontational, polarized culture within the Midwest, at least in recent times. What's been happening there? Do you see that, that confrontational dynamic becoming more amplified in recent years? What have you seen, Adam? Yeah, I think that's a really good observation that Wisconsin in some ways was a forerunner of what we've seen nationally uh, happening later. Scott Walker was very divisive, but I think the Democrats in Wisconsin were also ready to be quite confrontational back. Um, and we've seen very bitter uh, elections at the at the state level uh, in 2018, for example, Scott Walker was just by a very narrow sliver kicked out of office and replaced by a more gentle figure called Tony Evers. So the Democrats have the governor's office, but the Republicans still have a lockhold on both the, 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 the House and the Senate in, in Wisconsin. So there's a very divided and confrontational uh, nature of the politics in Wisconsin, which has led to all sorts of angry demonstrations, clashes over how to handle COVID-19, um, bitter discussion about how to deal with redistricting that will come along probably next year because the state is among the most gerrymandered of all the states in the US. And I think if you look at where the voters go in cities like Madison, uh, around the University of Wisconsin, in Milwaukee with a large African-American population, obviously a, a big urban area, those are rock-solid Democrat areas. But the rural parts of Wisconsin, the rural parts, the suburbs are much more solidly Republican. So when I went to a Donald Trump rally in Milwaukee back in January, it was in the middle of Milwaukee, but it was full of all these people who'd come in from the suburbs and obviously were rather fanatical in their support for Donald Trump. So it's a really confrontational state. Fasman, do you see something different about Biden? I mean, Hillary famously didn't campaign in Wisconsin, which was viewed as a big mistake. Do you think that his potential success in the Midwest has to do with who he is as a candidate or a different campaign strategy or both? What What's different about Biden versus Hillary in 2020? I mean, I think it's all of the above, right? Hillary Clinton had to endure 25 years of, of misogynistic caricatured attacks on her. Joe Biden has not had to do that. And so that's that's a crucial difference that he's he, he, he doesn't have that caricature. I think he's also aware of the mistakes that the Clinton campaign made, which is assuming the persistence of the Obama coalition and not doing enough to shore up the base, especially in those three white working class states, also not doing enough to sort of excite African-Americans to turn out in those states. Um, and so I think he has one reason he did well. And I remember before everything shut down, I was in South Carolina for the primary and voters who I spoke to there, overwhelmingly African-American Democrats who I spoke to there, talked about his appeal in states like that as one reason that they backed him. So I think his the one reason he did so well is that he was perceived as the candidate who could regain those blue wall states. And that perception has sort of become a reality and that he looks quite likely to do that. And John, just one extra little wrinkle on this. You and I were both in Iowa back at the beginning of the year, which feels like an eternity ago. But Joe Biden was not very popular in the primaries at the very beginning of this race. Back in January, Biden came fourth in Iowa among activists in the Democratic Party. He really didn't inspire confidence, but he did inspire interest, enthusiasm from moderates, from independents, even from moderate Republicans. And I think his great appeal in the Midwest is that he, he has that sort of 
ability to reach out beyond the Democratic Party into independence and into some moderate Republicans. So his, his appeal is rather broad. And I think because of his personal links to Pennsylvania, his family links to Pennsylvania, some people here see him as a bit of an honorary Midwesterner. What about Trump? Uh, what's his strategy this time around? One of the things that I remember hearing from the Trump campaign, certainly late last year, was that they saw Minnesota and New Hampshire as, as winnable states. That suggests to me what has happened, which is that he has doubled down on the sort of grievance and revanchist elements of his candidacy. And he had hoped that that would appeal to in these sort of whiter Midwestern states. We haven't seen that happen so far, whether that's because of COVID and his mishandling of that, or whether it's because people have just gotten tired of his tactics. I don't really know, but we haven't seen that happen. I guess Trump had a, a few other strategies in the Midwest. He, he's dumped huge quantities of subsidies on Midwestern farmers, $28 billion in just two years to try to shore up the, the farmer vote. Um, he had long hoped that he could bet on an economic recovery for the Midwest. So there's been, there was much trumpeting of, of the re renaissance of manufacturing, for example, that he was going to bring to states like Wisconsin. That obviously fell apart. And I think what we're seeing instead is him doubling down on the sort of racial division and distraction from the COVID-19 disaster that may just, you know, possibly distract some voters away from, from what's gone horribly wrong. But older voters in the Midwest have especially turned against Donald Trump. So I don't, don't think he has a lot of hope at the moment unless there's some vaccine or recovery that will come quickly. Well, thanks to you both. I find the Midwest completely fascinating. And that's, of course, because I'm biased. But it's where elections are decided. It's also where some of these huge issues are really played out, whether it's police violence, um, economic recovery. These are problems that are heightened in the Midwest and how presidential candidates seek to solve those problems has a really big role in in helping to guide America's future. The Midwest plays a huge role electorally and economically. So to those of you who want to learn more, I really recommend Adam's special report. And now it's quiz time. Drum roll. I'm so thrilled that I get to ask the question rather than answer it this week. Let's begin. Abraham Lincoln was the first president from the Midwest. Depending on whether you count Pennsylvania, the region has sent 12 or 13 of its sons to the White House. No daughters yet. Which Midwestern state has had the most presidents? Ohio. John is an expert on all these things, so I, I would just say whatever John said, but I'll say something different for the sake of the competition. I'll say uh, Illinois. It is Ohio. Your first instinct was correct, Adam. You should always just go with whatever Fasman says. That's my strategy. Um, so one point for John. Second question. Ohio accounts for seven American presidents, second only to Virginia, which has eight. Ulysses Grant was the first Ohioan to win the presidency. The Economist covered his election in its issue of November 7th, 1868. And the paper was delighted that the new president would continue the policy of reconstruction and that he might make, quote, Louisiana as orderly as Massachusetts. Our correspondent writes that Grant's promise to restore order matched his most notable personal quality, one which is often associated with Midwesterners. What was that? was his personal quality for which he was famous. Is it just plain, plain spokenness? That's what I think of as a Midwestern quality. Did he have a tremendously impressive beard? Well, he did have a, an impressive beard. His, his main trait was silence. He was exceptionally silent, The Economist reported. So I'll give Fasman half a point. 
We wrote, quote, in a land where everybody talks, he is regarded as a phenomenon of silence. Well, thanks, Adam. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thank you. That's all from us. Thanks very much for listening. John Prudo will be back next week, safe and sane, we hope, when we'll have more checks and balance. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Apply. See site for details.